Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. Uh, back with me again, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And it's been a while, but she's finally back. <laughs> Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, the madness of the World Economic Forum, the trans rapist in a woman's prison. I talk to Timandra Harkness about the UK's online safety bill. And finally, we discuss Facebook's unbanning of Donald Trump. So the World Economic Forum's annual get-together in Davos came to an end at the weekend. This is the uh, shindig where the global superclass gets together to discuss all the big issues, to demonstrate what excellent thought leaders they are and things like that. Um, we should come on to talk about some of the lowlights of the actual forum in a minute. But to start off, let's let's watch a clip of Keir Starmer where he's asked, um, where does he prefer, Westminster or Davos? Davos. Westminster just is a, a tribal shouting place. Tom, what do you think that says about Keir Starmer and what do you think it says about Davos and the kind of what well, he's getting into? What it says about Keir Starmer immediately is he's got dreadful judgment. You know, mm. I know this was a kind of snap question situation, but that clip has already been played over and, and over and over again. <laughs> and if you don't want to look like an out of touch, you know, North London Labour politician than talking about how you'd much rather be in the Swiss Alps hanging out mm. with the global super elite because it's just so much less tribal and ugly <laughs> than democratic Westminster politics. And that was exactly the right answer to give. More broadly, though, it does speak to the fact that not just Keir Starmer, but so many politicians, the reason they're drawn to things like the World Economic Forum is because it's uh, another expression of that desire to do politics beyond the kind of mucky fray of democracy, mm. um, decision-making amongst a kind of consensual global elite who have already worked out what the right thing to do is. It's just about how you get there. Um, and also that kind of strange way in which in recent decades, our political class have kind of, under the banner of internationalism, but really we talk about globalism, I suppose, draw more of their sort of authority and their... Uh, legitimacy from one another yeah. and from supranational institutions rather than the people that they're elected to represent and govern in the name of that kind of itchiness that they have with the restraints of national politics of borders and so on like it's it was such a kind of startlingly honest um yeah. you know kind of pledge of allegiance if you like to that kind of way of thinking um in terms of and in terms of davos and the world economic forum i think it really speaks to the fact that Again, there's often a lot of kind of conspiracy mongering around the World Economic Forum that it is some sort of shady cabal that is plotting world domination and so on. But really what you're seeing is that it, to the extent that it has sort of legitimacy beyond the huge amounts of money that's in the room because of its, you know, a thousand companies which make up its membership and have mm. to pay through the nose even just to get to this particular shindig to discuss all the world's ills. That The reason so many politicians are involved is, again, because they're, kind of, they're kind of willfully drawn to it. You know, they don't have that sense of legitimacy and clout at home. And so they kind of seek it amongst one another. That could be at a European council meeting or that could be at the World Economic Forum, it kind of serves a similar purpose for them, I think, to do politics beyond the yeah, the mucky and very national fray of which they're originally elected to operate in. Ella, I mean, Davos and the World Economic Forum is almost like the exact counter of the kind of thing that we would praise on Spikes, the kind mm. of populist insurgency. Some people have described Brexit, for instance, as a revolt against Davos man. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you make of that kind of yeah, well, you, I mean, you don't want to get kind of workerist about it, but I think that there is something about Kirsama's sort of lack of shame in being so enthusiastic about 
Davos, you know, this is a um, a guy who hopes to be the prime minister of a country that's facing a series of quite serious crises, made a big fuss recently about the fact that, you know, Labour should not be seen on picket lines. This is not the place for Labour, but absolutely happy to be kind of like in the world of, you know, cigar smoke filled rooms and, you know, champagne glasses of, of Davos. And there's, you know, it's, you can kind of make a shallow, I suppose, argument about how there's, there's, yeah, there's this kind of lack of shame about how sort of blatantly capitalist all of it is in this really grubby way. Um, but I think more importantly, you know, the criticism that should be leveled at Keir Starmer is that it would be one thing if he went to a forum like this and said, okay, as a hopeful leader, I have this great economic plan for the country and let me go and schmooze some uh fat cats in order to get them to invest some of their money in, I don't know, new battery plants in England or whatever, you know, like some big, spend some money and, and have some kind of big political ideas. But of course, number one, Kistama and the Labour Party, you know, the Conservatives too, but particularly the Labour Party have no, uh, you know, no desire to have any kind of big plans in relation to the economy. But also, as Frank Frady pointed out on Spike this week, if you look at the kind of you know, political ideas that come out of Davos yeah. and the great, their great reset, which is sort of you know, spun off a lot of conspiracy theorists, but really is a kind of boring plan around decarbonization and the idea that um, economic resilience lies in being nice to LGBTQ plus people. And so this is, you know, it, it's, it's almost like it's a wasted opportunity. Actually, if there were, there were other people in the, and if, you know, not to kind of blow smoke up our backsides, but, you know, an ordinary person got there, you can imagine making some kind of making something out of the fact of being among so much kind of swilling around money but instead he just shakes a few hands and as Frank says you know treats it like a PR exercise which is essentially what Davos is it's like a, a showroom for people to be seen at. Well the the kind of ideas that you know you mentioned they're very much you know the kind of things we talk about all the time on the show the kind of you know woke blamange that um, basically every politician seems to be grasping for and um, one of the um, themes at Davos every year. In fact, going right back to the 1970s mm. has been uh, the environment. Mm. Um, usually, you know, people say climate change is a product of um, capitalism and it's the evil capitalists are ruining the planet. But actually, it seems as if the elite are very invested in this idea. Let's take a look at a clip of John Kerry, um, Joe Biden's climate envoy. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives, are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever, and, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. <laughs> Tom, what do you make of the um, the prospect of the global elite stepping in to save the planet? There's, there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? I mean, <laughs> first of all, it's the kind of self consciousness of themselves as the elites, you know, mm. the select, the elects, the people who are here to again kind of rule over everyone else for the good of everyone else, even if you don't necessarily know it. All of that is so striking. Um, it's kind of yeah, luxuriating in that particular status, and I think it speaks to something that you were. Um, gesturing to there, Fraser, about how how the kind of global capitalist class, if you like, are really increasingly attached to the issue of climate change. Um, partly because, in general, and this is something something like the WEF really represents, which is that kind of 
strange way in which the capitalist elites are trying to kind of justify themselves. Mm. So therefore, they so we've got some sort of broader social and moral purpose. Similarly, they're also very um, generally as a group of people don't like the idea of kind of national governments getting in the way of things. And so an issue like climate change um, kind of allows them to, first of all, pose as heroes, yeah. pose as kind of, you know, the great savers of the world. Um, also, because it's, so it puffs them up in that sense. Also, it's a sort of problem that in the way in which they cast it, it was like, this is bigger than politics. This mm. is bigger than messy national democracy. So that obviously is grist their mill in many respects as well. Um, and also, you know, gives them that kind of state, gives them that kind of status. It kind of, uh, greenwashing is a kind of tired phrase, but it does sort of, mor in their own heads, kind of morally rehabilitate them, you know. Mm. And you sort of certainly saw this kind of rise of what was seen as like social response, socially responsible capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, which is a phrase that the World Economic Forum still kind of champion. This idea that there has to be this kind of meeting point between big business and um, the public sector, bureaucracies, um, national governments and so on, to the ends of doing politics. Um, what you see, whether it's climate change or any of the other issues that they talk about, is the one thing they tend to have in common is that, again, they, they don't have much time for the nation state, but nor do they have any time for democracy. The, out of this whole kind of global civil society, as they like to think of themselves as, the public are not really represented, yeah. um, only incredibly in, indirectly and really not at all via various kind of NGOs mm. who are invited along or some, you know various indigenous leaders who might perform for the groups and then, you know, bow out before the main <laughs> or discussion. Bono or Greta or exactly. these other that's the That's the activist <laughs> sets who are there to represent everyone else's interests. So through the climate issue, you just see what appeals to them so much. It, it puffs them up in so many respects. It salves their kind of consciences, if you like. Um, but also it appeals to that, you know, it's 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 quite convenient because it appeal, it empowers them to make policy and make decisions over the heads of ordinary people who tend to be highly sceptical, shall we say, of net zero or any of these other wheezes, which they're quite keen for the rest of us to pursue. Ella? Well, I think it's just remarkable that John Kerry, John Kerry can describe himself in like without any kind of uh, embarrassment as a le liberal lefty tree hugger. I mean, you know, like that, <laughs> yeah. it shows you well, what I suppose that... part of him is saying, well, you know, you'd get dismissed as that. But he's saying this is something that, you know, I think it's fine to be a le lefty liberal tree hugger. It's just, it shows how empty any kind of sense of genuine, um, you know, what you were talking about, Tom, in terms of, you know, appreciating the importance of democracy, of genuine kind of left-wing scepticism of either kind of capitalist parties like the World Economic Forum or indeed the kind of policies that come out of them. That there's, you know, that it, it, the only kind of main criticism of the WEF at the moment tends to be in terms of sort of kind of a conspiratorial view, as Brendan O'Neill points out in Spike this week. I mean, it doesn't help that they use titles like <laughs> Great Reset and all that kind of thing. Mm, it's like, yeah. <laughs> Brendan makes a point that it's, it's you know, what's, what kind of strikes you from all of this and the reason why someone like Keir Starmer or indeed, you know, Rishi Sunak doing these kind of similar things, although, or Ursula von der Leyen, um, the reason why they're so drawn to it and why it's such an influential thing for them is because it's a home for people who have no authority. It's not that the World Economic Forum is a place where, you know, the drivers of society and, uh, you know, to kind of come together and decide what's going to happen to the globe. It's actually a kind of hiding place for all these individuals, technocrats, who know that they are on, you know, because of Brexit and other things, who know that they're on relatively shaky political ground, can't have, don't feel that they have any kind of authority 
in their own political arenas of, of national sovereignty and national politics and so hide away here. So instead of being this kind of very authoritative, scary cabal of, mm. you know, uh, of an influential place, it's actually like a, lo- it's a loser's club in a way. I mean, losers with a lot of flipping money, yeah. but <laughs> of, of, of to power, show a lot how... Of influence, a lot of ventralness, certainly. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but yeah. no, Not but no... Political authority, no big ideas, nothing interesting. And, and you see that in some in the kind of mindless repetition that all of the kind of Western political leaders who might be seen at Davos of any given year will go back to their own countries and then repeat the same slogans. It could yeah. be around net zero, it could be around build back better, the year in which everyone's re-election campaign was build back better and yeah. so on and so <laughs> forth. You could, you know, there's there's people who will see that and think, what's going on here, and try and connect the dots. But you know, the the simplest explanation is that these people have no idea; they have no politics to them often. Um, and so they're kind of just parasitic off of what is presented to them as this kind of global globalist consensus. This is what must be done. You kind of take it back dutifully and, and implement it. But I completely agree. I mean, the, about the point about it is also an expression of weakness and also the fact that Brexit really discomforted them. That's why mm. they talk about it constantly, yeah. gatherings like this, yeah. all these years on, because of the fact that was that blow to their political authority in their own um, particular territories back on planet Earth. Um, but it also kind of showed up that despite the fact they claim to rule in everyone's interests, that they actually have the social and the broader good at heart, there are publics across the West um, who firmly disagree with that and are lashing out at any possible opportunity. A male convicted rapist calling himself Isla Bryson um, is currently in a woman's prison, although there's been a last-minute intervention from First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, who says he should leave. This is despite the fact that Sturgeon has been pushing for this gender recognition bill, which would suggest that anyone who claims to be a woman should be treated as one. Ella, what have you made of this extraordinary story? It is extraordinary. And I think the way in which it's been reported has been extraordinary. If you look at the um, the way in which the BBC has reported on it, it says that a trans, you know, uses the she, her pronouns, it says mm. that a trans woman who was convicted of rape, you know, talking about a woman raping another woman, basically. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you were just fresh and new to this debate, you would be absolutely, but completely bamboozled by what actually happened until you get sort of six paragraphs down. And they mentioned that actually this individual was called Adam Graham yeah. and is a man um, and decided to begin a transitioning journey after being caught for mm. um, several crimes, sex offending crimes. Um, and I think the reason why that's really important is because Nicola Sturgeon has, has been forced to take this U-turn, people are calling it, but I mean, most people understand it as the most basic of simple kind of common sense understandings that you should not put a rapist into a woman's prison. Um, the only reason that she's done it is because it's become untenable to to for her own career, I think, mm. for her to main, maintain this absolutist approach to um, tra- to the issue of trans and trans women in particular, don't forget that um, throughout the kind of process of the of the Scottish Gender um, Recognition Reform Bill, that there were um, there was an amendment put forward to deal with this very issue to say, mm. okay, okay, you know, we can have rows about gender, blah blah blah, but on the basic level of a sex offender entering a prison, shouldn't that not be allowed? Uh, under this legislation, and it was dismissed as being transphobic. Yeah, and you know, it's only thanks to the thousands of Scottish people and also people across the whole of the UK 
you know, saying, hang on a minute, this has just gone completely too far. And probably some of Nicola Sturgeon's aides saying, you're going to completely lose all political credibility if you continue down this road, that she's taken this decision. But it's not, this is not sufficient. This does Mm. not, um, you know, do anything to uh, apologise for or kind of recuperate Nicola Sturgeon's political authority in relation to this. The SNP is absolutely mired in this gender um, and transgender nonsense. And this is the very basic bare minimum of an approach to sex difference, which is that you do not put men into women's prisons. Tom, Nicola Sturgeon famously said people raising cases like this, their concerns were not valid. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is now a real humiliation for her, surely. It is. I mean, not least because as you were saying, Ella, you know, this is precisely the case that that amendment would have mitigated against, but Mm. for the reasons of ideology and not wanting to be, to give an inch essentially to any of the gender critical concerns, they completely knock that back. The thing is, this has happened before. Yeah. Under, I mean, this case was obviously under the existing gender recognition, UK, well, GBY gender recognition laws, um, because the fact that that bill is obviously being held up, it hasn't properly been given royal assent yet. Um, But there have been many other cases like it. There was the Karen White case back in 2018, I think, or thereabouts, um, where this individual, another male rapist, um, career criminal, very sadistic individual, um, decided he was a she, Mm. and so ended up in a women's prison where he went on to sexually assault two female inmates. Um, There's been various cases of paedophiles who have been, there was one, Martin Ponting, who was, he'd been in prison since the late 90s, I think. And around 2017, he decided that he was a woman, all of a sudden, and then was put into a women's prison. He had to be uh, segregated from the rest of the population swiftly after because he would start making advances at the female inmates. And it's these cases, given how across the detail of this whole debate Nicholas Sturgeon poses as, will have been brought to her attention. There's also been cases in Scotland of there was one particular young offender who was caught preying on girls in the supermarket, was sent to a young offender's institution and then was released into a women's halfway house, uh, a sort of hostel. Um, these cases have been brought up time and time again. She's aware of this. It's mm. not a myth. It's not a fantasy. It's not a bigoted fever dream on the part of turfs or whatever. And yet she went ahead with it anyway. The fact that she's been forced under the weight of humiliation to kind of backtrack and to intervene in this particular case, I think just doesn't give her any credit whatsoever because this is something that's been dismissed time and time again for the matters of ideology even when you're talking about all of these cases you know quite so, you know i think you need sex segregated prisons i think that's just important it doesn't matter how someone identifies doesn't yeah. matter how sincere those doesn't matter if, how sincere those beliefs are doesn't matter what kind of crimes that they're in for it's just a fundamental common sense safeguarding thing it's important for the dignity and safety of the women who are in prison many of which are very vulnerable individuals in many respects but at the same time, you'd have to be a complete idiot not to recognise that this is a system that could so easily be exploited. If you yeah. genuinely think that this bloke, Isla Bryson, as he claims, has been gender dysphoric since the age of four mm. and only decided to do anything about it after he had been found to have raped two women and the court proceedings has begun, he was under his original name, but what he now calls his dead name when these court proceedings began, yeah. then you're completely lost. Like, this is complete nonsense. Not only is there this credulity in the face of obvious fakers, there's a just sort of willingness to almost be like, well, you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. Like, you know, you just ignore stuff like this because it's just the old anecdote, even though it has happened time and time and time again. I mean, I mean, this is surely people are just trying to defend the indefensible. That's why it's got to this level, because people are trying to stick by the idea that no one would ever 
tell a lie about their gender identity. And so they even have to accept cases like this. I think it's it shows the complete lack of nuance, which, you know, let's, let's be really clear here. From the get-go of this sort of gender war, there has been on the one side trans activists who, you know, either whether it's Stonewall types, mermaid types, or the SNP, who have taken an absolutist position, which is trans women are women, you know, you must believe. And mm. you know, if you don't, then you're a bigot. On the other side of, of gender critical people, or, you know, some of them dispute that term, but whatever, the side that's critical of all this stuff that we're on, the vast majority of people say, you know, we are, there. there's nuance here. We'll, we'll be nice to people. You can dress how you want. You can blah, 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 all that sort of stuff that you have to apologize for before you say what you want to say. But there is a kind of, you know, much more lenient, mm. much more open to a kind of the sense that there are many areas in society where people can mix and, you know, you never have to ask someone's pronouns and all the rest of it. Just not in the very specific places of sex where sex segregation, as Tom says, is important, like changing rooms in schools or prisons or rape crisis centres, you know, and, and can that just be our red line, please? And that's, you know, that is portrayed as some kind of horrendously bigoted position. But I just wanted to say one point on the, on, you know, in relation to how the law works and what, you know, we have so much discussion, particularly about violence against women, about how important it is to record things that happen, to record how many men rape women, to, you know, to record domestic violence statistics and all that kind of stuff. And so then for a legal system to effectively tell lies, mm, which is yeah. to say that on the 15th of January, a trans woman raped a woman, mm. you know, which is a lie. What yeah. happened was a man raped a woman, a man called Adam Graham. Um, to then say, you know, to take him at his word of saying, well, this was my dead name and to change, you know, whether it's a birth certificate or a crime that happened, a fact that happened in society, someone was born, someone committed a crime and then say that that didn't happen, that something else happened. It, you know, where do you stand if that's, if that's what the kind of the very basics of sort of fact in our society are going to be thrown out of the window? Mm. It's you, it's not an extreme thing to say that you then can't, nothing can be proven anymore. If you give, um, if you kind of give any leeway to the idea that those facts cannot stand unaltered, it's a really important thing, not just for sort of stats around violence against women, but for trust in the justice system well if you know if, if and it and has as has happened before victims are made yeah. to refer to their attacker as she yeah when mm. they obviously know that that is not a she yeah and in the context of recent years in which particularly when you're talking about sexual violence trials and so mm. on a lot of eth effort and thinking being put into how do we make this an as comfortable environment as possible for if that can even be the case for the um complainants in those particular cases you're now kind of it's in this particular category often involving some of the most depraved and in many cases devious sort of individuals that we're talking about you're complaining you know even if they're not compelled to address them in that way they have to hear other people do so they have to read news reports in which her penis yeah. is referred to i mean this is deranging it's also deeply insulting as you know as you both suggest and as you say it's the it's the um, legal system it's the media and the other thing you think is that in relation to trans people themselves i mean what this the essentially the kind of conflation of trans people and their right to identify however they wish to live lives free of discrimination and so on has been kind of which everyone can get on board with broadly speaking which has been been conflated with 
essentially a civil rights movement devoted to the rights of sex offenders' feelings not to be hurt and to be allowed in a prison that won't upset their often quite flimsy claimed identities for themselves. Mm. I don't, I'm sure they, this is something that they are not welcoming. You know, yeah. the thing that is being associated with putting children of younger and younger ages on, you know, life-altering courses of therapy and so on. This is surely something that is not good for for trans people for this debate. And it's just, you know, if anything, it's the sort of trans activists who've done more than anyone else to conflate trans people and these predators. They're the ones who have collapsed the boundaries between these two things because they have this practice credulity in the face of these claims, even when it's so obviously depraved and dishonest individuals involved in it. Right, so up next, the UK's online safety bill, the government's plan to regulate the internet, is currently making its way through Parliament and will soon get a second reading in the House of Lords. To discuss this and the threat it poses to internet freedom, I caught up with Tamandra Harkness, author of Big Data Does Size Matter a few days ago, and I started off by asking her about what the government thinks it's trying to protect us from on the internet. I mean, I think it's quite interesting that at one point in its history, it was talked about as the online harms bill, uh, and it's moved from harms to safety. But I think both of those ways of framing it very much conjure up this idea that there are terrible things waiting to happen to you on the internet, and it's the government's job to protect you from them. And in one sense, this isn't a ridiculous thing, because in other walks of life, I mean, you know, there are already laws to protect you from fraud, for example, which, as you say, also apply online. If you're defrauded online, then it's still fraud. Uh, and likewise, uh, things that, that threats or people making public your home address, which can endanger you, already illegal offline uh, and also illegal online. So, it's not entirely ridiculous that you would include the online world in in legal protections. But I think what's really interesting about this bill is that right from the start, it was framed as this way of saying, well, look, we want to make the online world a safe place uh, and frame, like re-engineer the whole online world so that it becomes geared around reducing risks of harm. And I think when you understand that that's where it came from, the whole mess of the bill, which is a complete hodgepodge of completely different things that they're trying to protect us from and completely different measures, all all then thrown into this mad bundle where they say, well, self-regulation hasn't worked. So now we're going to make this self-regulation, but Ofcom is going to supervise it And then if they don't self-regulate properly, we're going to put them in prison. But it makes more sense when you see that it's based on this attempt to re-engineer the whole way the internet works around the primary objective of making it safe. And when we're talking about things like harm and safety, um, clearly, since we're dealing with the internet, this is mostly concerning uh, words, potentially images, films, things like that. Isn't there a potentially endless scope for what can be considered harmful and, and and unsafe? I mean, this bill has taken seemingly forever to get through Parliament because there's often, you know, a new group with a new priority tacking on their thing that they say needs to be banned. You know, in the past couple of weeks, we've heard the government wants to ban promotion of the small boats. Um, there's been upskirting and down-blousing offences added to it. 
uh, Labour MPs uh, the other week were saying that, that we need this bill to stop Andrew Tate and any anything seemingly can be hung off it. So, well, the, but that is the inherent problem when you set out to try and uh, get rid of risk because life is inherently risky. There's no obvious line to draw where you say, okay, well, these risks are just part of living life and these risks are ones that we should try and minimise. Um, I mean, there are some obvious lines. I think, for example, it's a great shame that there was an original very laudable aim to protect children from uh, various online things, from being contacted by uh, malicious actors who might then want to harm them in real life, from encountering material that's not suitable for children. And it's a pity, really, that that has got rolled into this very unwieldy approach because you know, that is a very obvious line. I think most people agree that you should protect children from things that are suitable for adults. How you do it in practice is, is a whole other thing. But I think this is the key problem, that as soon as you start saying, well, harms, what are harms? You very quickly go on from things that are physical threats or uh, or attempts at fraud, for example, to things like people feeling psychologically distressed online bullying, uh, which again, you know, has been cited as a real problem with children, but is also kind of extended to adults. And then I think it, it just becomes impossible because you're trying to say, we need somebody to make all human interactions online completely safe and harmless. And again, human interactions are not completely safe and harmless. If you include in that the possibility that you get your feelings hurt, that you have and, you know, some people have a really genuinely horrible time online. <laughs> it's horrible. It has a real psychological effect. It shouldn't happen. But like many things that shouldn't happen, you can't make them go away just by passing a law against them. Uh, so I, I think this is the real problem. But it originated in this idea that the Internet, as it's currently set up with big social media companies who obviously are incentivized to get lots of interaction, activity, engagement, emotional engagement from all of us, because that's where they get the money from advertising, that some academics looked at this and said, well, this is a terrible way for the internet to run. We should, you know, they, you can see they have this, this thing like, why can't we start again? Why can't we have the innocent internet like we used to have when you know, when people started off in the 80s and had this great idea that it would be this lovely free world. Uh, and we need to re-engineer it. And so we need to put pressure on these companies who have the power to have a completely different set of priorities and put ethics at the centre. And so let's have this law that sets out to make the internet a safe place. One interesting way the bill works is that it's not the state kind of directly censoring so-called harmful material. Instead, it imposes a duty of care on social media firms that will then be uh, looked at by um, Ofcom to see if the companies are complying. I mean, are there problems with that approach? I mean, does, is that really sensible a sensible way to deal with the internet? No, it's not sensible at all. Um, and there's a very good lawyer called Graham Smith who uh, tweets as cyber legal, who is a lawyer and knows about these things, has looked in great detail over a number of years because this idea started kicking around in 2018. And as he points out, the duty of care is a completely inappropriate way to think about this. The duty of care generally is you have very specific duties towards very specific people. So if you're employing somebody, you have a duty of care to them that 
you don't put them in a dangerous situation, you don't put them in dangerous working conditions, you've given them the training for the job they need to do and so on. Uh, if you uh, if you own a, a building, then you have a duty of care to keep the building safe so that nobody coming into the building is going to fall through the stairs or something like that. Um, the, the, the internet is, is a completely different kettle of fish, really. That would be like saying, well, if you own a house, you're responsible for what people say to each other as they walk through the house. <laughs> and you're not, clearly. If you own a house, you're not responsible for what people say to each other. Uh, so it's it's a very weird thing to try and graft on to the internet. But again, it comes from this idea that we all need looking after and that unsupervised human interaction is inherently bound to become harmful. I can't help feeling there's a bit of projection here that politicians and policymakers feel that the world is out of control and the world is unsafe and they are somehow expected now to make it safe which clearly they can't because that's just impossible. And so they're turning their attention to the online, which has the advantage of it appears to be in some way contained. And also there are these big companies who provide most of the platforms through which we use it, and they can be blamed. But the whole idea that you've spent the last however many years saying it's dreadful what these companies are doing, and then... You say, so what we'll do is we'll put them in charge of policing what people can say and show and share. Uh, it's just, it's so bizarre. It's completely unworkable. And if it was workable, it would be the end of free public conversation. We've learned a lot in the past few years that the tech companies are perfectly willing and able um, and a bit too eager to censor speech online, um, certainly in, in Spike's view. I mean, why would we want to encourage even more censorship? Well, it depends what you mean by we, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't want to encourage more censorship. I, I agree that I think there's too much tendency to censor views in often quite an arbitrary way. Uh, and this bill would only encourage that, obviously, because they're now threatening to imprison tech company bosses if they feel that they're not making enough effort to and at this duty of care to protect us from each other. So there's, there's, it's an absolutely, <laughs> it's a very clear incentive to tech companies to err on the side of caution, err on the side of removing material, uh, or at least rewriting the algorithm so that anything contentious doesn't get passed on and shared. Uh, and so it, it's bound to result in the end of any kind of, I mean, you know, don't let's exaggerate, in a way, this is just bringing to the fore that what we think of as public space online is not public. It's owned by companies and they set the ground rules. So, you know, in a way, it just makes us more aware of, of what was already the case. But it's certainly incentivizing them to use even more censorship and be even more repressive, as if the way to get a better quality of public debate is just to shut people up rather than to foster a culture where you genuinely listen to each other and try not to take disagreement as a personal attack uh, and so on. And honestly, I really hope this all falls by the wayside. I don't think it will, but it's such a mess. It's such a mess of a law. I don't think it will even do the good things that it's trying to do. And I think it will completely mess up any possibility of having online space as any kind of public space. Tamandra Harkness, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Cheers.
And finally, um, Facebook has unbanned Donald Trump after two years. Um, Tom, should, should we be relieved or still alarmed that Facebook can essentially have the power to tell us who we can and can't listen to? I, th- I, th- I think it's definitely the latter. I mean, <laughs> insofar as the, the shock of him being kicked off of Facebook, Twitter, every social media company going, essentially. And even when, you know, you had Parler, which is the one platform that was allowing him to be on of a certain size that effectively got booted off of the internet (laughs) infrastructure um it was an assertion of the authority and the power to do that to commit what isn't by many measures you know the kind of greatest and most significant act of censorship we've ever seen as far as the reach of it the consequences of it the fact that it was uh, the interference in the democratic process of you know the the country that's the alleged leader of the free world and what Twitter under Elon Musk allowing him back on or Facebook saying now that we've actually reviewed this, he's allowed back on as long as he's a good boy. Yeah. Nothing nothing unpicks that new status that they claim for themselves as mm. the kind of um yeah, the kind of global policeman of speech and debate and acceptability. They've also ushered in a whole new set of rules. You know, they make up a set of rules on the fly just in response to whatever the New York Times is having a go at them for in any given week about what politicians will get booted off for in times of civil unrest and so on, again, kind of writing backwards from the capital right and so on. So they're very comfortable in that new role. And the fact that Trump is being taken off the naughty step mm. does not suggest that there has been any reckoning with that particular role, nor has there been any kind of serious thinking about how do we make sure that we get away from this particular situation where we have empowered these oligarchs to be the referees of democratic politics. So, yeah, I mean, it will. You know, if, if he ever actually does rejoin these platforms, which presumably he'll have to, he'll have to if he wants to run a campaign yeah. again. <laughs> and at least that will be amusing. But it has, you know, politically speaking, there's not much to celebrate. Definitely, Ella. I just think it's remarkable that you know Nick Clegg. Nick mm. Clegg is the guy Oof, who is who is universe, yeah. taking <laughs> Trump off the naughty step. This, you know, it's you kind of want it as a sort of. British person explained to the rest mm, of the world what yeah. a loser this guy is, yeah. failed politician, and how absolutely outrageous it is. He went from what was it in the seat and you know fifty odd seats yeah. in Parliament down to nine. He lost his seat to Jared O'Mara, who's currently back fighting. in the news. Yeah, back in the news, one of my favourite politicians, <laughs> <laughs> along with Keith Faz, um, who's currently fending off allegations that he was using his expenses to pay for cocaine. Mm. He's a um, Used to write sort of funny multiple abuser of girls allowed and this is Jared Amara. We should be clear, not yeah, not but the, Amara, but the yeah. fact that sorry, this is Nick, <laughs> Nick Clegg lost to this man <laughs> and so and is now and now has such as Tom says such political clout in order in to be able to particularly you know the some of the quotes that came out of you know the Facebook's decision was sort of you know like we have these guardrails. He's mm. basically he's on parole. Mm. We're watching him. Don't worry. One misstep, and and you know, of course, you know, Trump. The, the, what they don't understand is Trump's entire, well, not entire, but a large part of his appeal is I don't play by the rules. Mm. You know, and yes, you know, a lot of that is incredibly shallow and it's just bluster. But the appeal of if you actually seriously wanted to challenge his political dominance in America, or you wanted to provide some kind of alternative, you have to understand that a lot of, you know, the thing that makes me appeal, you know, interested in him is not to do with his political policies, but the fact that he says, you know, two fingers to you, um, sort of big tech, I'll do what I like. And that's why a lot of people prefer him to the kind of incredibly sort of cautious, censorious approach of his opponents, because at the heart of it is, you know, 
even false, uh, falsely as he does, Trump saying, I'm the everyman, yeah. I'm the kind of on the people's side, which, you know, we might say is bollocks in certain kind of scenarios, but certainly in relation to free speech and big tech, much rather be on his side saying that than I would be on Nick Clegg saying, if you, you know, if you step out of line of our particular kind of uh, acceptable realms of um, political speech, then you're out of here. It's just, it's ridiculous that they keep making mm. the same mistake time and time again in relation to Trump. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.